A Zerg, a Terran, and a Protoss all walk into a bar. Bartender looks at the Protoss and says, why the no face? Then he looks at the Zerg and says, why is he in such a rush? Welcome to Triple Click, where we sometimes have to apologize for our intro jokes. This week, we return to StarCraft II with lots more to say after finishing the campaign for Legacy of the Void. So let's talk real-time strategy, shall we? I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Maddie Myers. And I'm Jason Schreier. Hello. 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 It's us back again. For hey, another it episode. Is us again. It is us again. Entering the void. <laughs> we are. We're entering the void. Re-entering the void. I thought the void was gone <laughs> because we're just discussing the legacy of the void. That's like, a great point. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's true. That's yeah. true. We're, we're talking about um, all of the many ways that the void informs our current lives. Uh-huh. The legacy <laughs> Of the void. That's what we're talking about this week. But before that, you all know the deal. We are a totally listener-supported podcast, which means that listeners like you are the reason that we're able to do this thing every week. And it's the the only way that we make money off of the show. We really, really appreciate all of the wonderful Maximum Fund members who support the creation of this show. And if you would like to join their ranks, you can go to MaximumFund.org slash join to become a member. And if you do that... You will be a member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, which is a cool thing on its own and also means you get all kinds of bonus episodes from every Maximum Fun show. There's a ton of them. There's like all these great comedy shows, shows about movies, shows with real bona fide celebrities on them, all <laughs> kinds of things. And, um, and you get bonus episodes from them. And of course, you get monthly bonus episodes from us, including, geez, I don't even know where to begin. 30 something episodes that we've recorded so far. I always just remember the Call of Duty Modern Warfare episode. I don't know why. That's the one that always comes to mind. Yeah, it was a while ago, but that that was a memorable one where Jason had not played Modern Warfare, Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare. So we talk about video games, we talk about TV shows. The (laughs) next one that we're going to record is going to be about The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. It'll be a little bit later. It'll run a little bit into September because we have some exciting scheduling things going on uh, in all of our lives (laughs) right now that we're working around. But it'll be worth the wait. It's going to be a lot of fun. So that's MaximumFun.org slash join to become a member. Thanks so much for supporting the creation of this show. All right, Jason Schreier, what are we talking about this week? This week we are talking about StarCraft II Legacy of the Void, a game we have all been playing as part of our ongoing predictions bet extravaganza. Uh, Short Mm -hmm. version is uh, Maddie and I tied a bet and we each got to pick games that we would play this year. Earlier Mm -hmm. in the year, we played Perfect Dark and discussed it as per Maddie's selection. And now we are playing StarCraft II. Really, we've all played StarCraft II Legacy of the Void. We've We've all all beaten it. Yeah. Played I through say. the campaign and played a little bit of multiplayer. Um, although played the Kirk, epilogue, pro- yes. prologue, <laughs> the and epilogue, epilogue. Of course, uh, mm-hmm. Kirk, Kirk didn't really play multiplayer. It was really just me. No, and he, he did. Kind of watched. <laughs> he but, was uh, kind of there. Remember? Still. Okay, hold on. Listen, Kirk and I both played against Jason. How That's are true. you forgetting this, Jason? We That's all played true. a multiplayer match together, and we we severely handicapped Jason in order <laughs> to true. make it a fair match. That was, That's yeah. true. That's and true. it was honestly so fun. 
that it kind of made me want to do it again. But there's so well, many other things again. Yeah. we could stream together that I feel like the competition is fierce. Uh, but someday we will again. <laughs> anyway, let's talk and about it. So now that we've all beaten, really, we're going to focus on the game as a whole. Look at it holistically. We're going to talk about the campaign. Um, so we will be getting into spoilers for StarCraft II Legacy of the Void, just <laughs> as a warning. In spoilers. case anyone out there has been waiting, <laughs> waiting eagerly to play this game, uh-huh. we will be talking What's about the happen? story. What's going to happen and and the void (laughs) and the void and yeah and we're gonna be going through it so let's go around um a little bit kirk why don't you start i'm curious as to like kind of overall thoughts now that you guys have completed the entire legacy of the void campaign what do you think of it what do you think of starcraft 2 in general what's your take um i think this game is really interesting and feels more like a snapshot of a moment in time than I was expecting, even though it's, you know, it still has this uh, vitality to it. It still feels like a really exciting, competitive game. Came out in November 2015, for what it's worth. Right, mm. 2015. And even then, I would say it maybe felt a little bit past the time when this yep. type of game was center stage. So the first the first StarCraft, StarCraft 2 really came out in 2010, July of 2010. Yes. This is yes. the, uh, I guess, second experience expansion or third entry in the series which was 2015 so yes you're correct at that point starcraft 2 had been exi- like in existence and an esport and played mm-hmm. competitively for five years at that point right and isn't there even kind of an argument that starcraft 2 in its entirety was a little bit past the peak moment yep. of real-time yep. strategy 100 unfortunately yes. yep <laughs> Yeah, especially the rise of MOBAs also happened very shortly after uh, Wings of Liberty came out. Like, I feel like over the course of these campaigns, uh, that was when we kind of saw that happen. So, yeah, I think it's hard for me to not think about Baldur's Gate 3 as I play this game as well. Um, <laughs> of course. Only because the real-time versus turn-based juxtaposition is just so strong between those two games. And it's really interesting that the biggest game, the PC game that everyone wants to talk about now in 2023, is a turn-based game where for so long real-time strategy and real-time games were dominant and became dominant in part because of the competitive scene and because you can play them. You know, they require so much more skill that they're a kind of more exciting Uh, and more engaging competitive experience. So playing this game, it just really, uh, it really feels like a different time in gaming to me, just from a design perspective and as a, from an experience perspective, like from the perspective of the experience that I have when I play it. Um, but it's also really charming. And that's just mechanically. Narratively, there's there's a lot more that we can say, too. I think uh, the narrative is, it's really funny jumping into the deep end, I guess, of the narrative of a game like this. <laughs> but I, I enjoyed my time Jumping with into the third entry in the trilogy. <laughs> I mean, even, yeah. even if you had played the first two games, this is, the Protoss stuff is always pretty dense with proper nouns and mm. exposition. And mm-hmm. it's, 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 it can be it can be a, a tough hang the story if you're not like full on like embracing the StarCraft stuff. Um, Maddie, to your point, not only did the rise of MOBAs really happen, um, like you said, between Wings of Liberty and the release of Legacy of the Void, it also had a big influence on the campaign design of both Heart of the Swarm, the 2013 Zerg expansion, and also this. In that, in both uh, this and Heart of the Swarm, even more so in Heart of the Swarm, you control hero characters. You have the mm-hmm. kind of the MOBA setup with the QWE, the specials and stuff, uh, the special, like the four abilities. Um, 
uh, you could trace that lineage all the way back to Warcraft 3, but still, it feels especially mobile-like when you're doing it. There's one mission in Legacy of the Void where you're controlling both Alarak and Kerrigan, and it's kind of mm-hmm. like a, a, a little little MOBA-ish experience, although there are no other armies or anything like that. But yeah, it's, it's very... Yeah. You can feel the influence here. And also, mm-hmm. you could feel at that point, even when this came out, that like real-time strategy games were getting kind of usurped by MOBAs and other genres. So, yes, it really does feel like a kind of a moment frozen in time. Also, a fun fact, Legacy of the Void came out on the same day as Fallout 4. Just a little wow. little piece of trivia. Wow. <laughs> that might be relevant for a future topic on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, might yeah. be. It might be. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that that mission, Jason, because I was I was streaming the game to some friends and that was the exact mission where they were like did this game come out before MOBAs or after MOBAs? Because this is looking so much like a MOBA right now. And we had to do some Googling to kind of try to figure out exactly when. And it all kind of happened at the same time. But yeah, you can really sense the strain on the game and some of these creative campaign missions where they kind of want it to feel like an adventure game where you're controlling just one character, but then Mm -hmm. have the big epic scale of controlling entire armies and you know, click, click, clicking and and doing all the StarCraft II of it all while still having that individuated story between all the hero characters. I, I think that it masters that tension pretty well. And it's almost too bad that I think a lot of people had the experience that I did and that I think Kirk did, where I played Wings of Liberty. I was really excited to play the next two campaigns. And then I completely forgot about them. Like they came mm-hmm. out. I just didn't play them. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I've been very happy with it, even though it does kind of feel like something that should have come out in 2010. Uh, and it feels like a snapshot of another time. I'm, I'm so glad that this bet got us all to play it because I had such a fantastic time with it. And it felt like closing the loop on a story that I had really enjoyed. And I actually kind of want to go play Heart of the Swarm now because I had played Wings of Liberty and now I've played Legacy of the Void. So why not Complete the trilogy in the completely wrong order. And complete <laughs> You'll enjoy Starcraft it. Two. Yeah, Heart of the Swarm is pretty. Heart of the Swarm is really cool, and it's got a different sort of spin because you're kind of you're upgrading Kerrigan over time, and you control her and most of yeah, the missions. Yeah, she's so and cool. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that is something about Heart of the Swarm that yeah. I had remembered from having played it that you have Kerrigan on the field in mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I don't know about every mission, but a lot of the missions, and there's that even stronger hero focus that I was actually expecting more of in Legacy of the Void since it came next. And like we've both said, or we've all said, uh, there was that move toward hero-based games happening already. Yeah, I don't know. I think that mission, the mission you you referenced, Jason, where Alarak and Kerrigan are down. I don't remember where exactly. Oh, did I say Artanis, not Alarak? Yeah, oh, sorry, Artanis. Yeah, you said Alarak. But yeah, yeah, it's my, my fault. Didn't quite sound right. Artanis. <laughs> Who can remember all the names? Yeah, why Why did we get that <laughs> wrong? What? <laughs> <laughs> it's so obviously Artanis. <laughs> Artanis, the extremely memorable faceless man. <laughs> and Kerrigan are, are uh, having their little adventure together. It It looks like sort of an uncharted thing, right? Like a, some sort of an action-adventure uh-huh, uh-huh. sequence. Uh-huh. Yep. Where they even, Kerrigan boosts Artanis. Uh, right, to, we have to, to open this cliff. door, yep, so so-and-so, yep. use your special ability <laughs> uh-huh. to go over there. They're and, exactly uh-huh. like Joel and Ellie. It's the same story, beat mm-hmm. for beat. <laughs> <laughs> and really, as as emotionally <laughs> affecting, really, is that too. But you can see them wanting to do more of that kind of storytelling, which is an interesting additional wrinkle to the way that this game reflects 
its place in a changing games industry because it's not just that they're sort of embracing the MOBA style of, of game design where you're controlling a single character and you're putting all of your strategic thinking into that one character. There's also just a different kind of storytelling that happens in a game where two people are alone in a big, exciting, weird place exploring it and moving from challenge to challenge while talking to one another. And that's just not the kind of story that a real-time strategy isometric view game <laughs> is able to tell. It just is an awkward fit. It doesn't really work in that level either. Like, it's fun to see them trying to do it. It's like watching a dog stand up on its hind legs and, you know, walk up to <laughs> a, a trick. takeout yeah. order at a, at a restaurant. And it's, it's funny because you're watching a thing that doesn't normally do a thing do that thing. But it's not a totally natural fit. I found it charming but not actually all that effective. And it mm-hmm. kind of made me want to play... You know, a game about these characters that uh, is actually designed to to function as that kind of a game, like a more narrative-focused action-adventure game. Yeah, yeah, man. Okay, there's a lot of interesting context here. So back in the StarCraft 1 days of StarCraft and Brood War, there were these missions called hero missions, where instead it would, it would kind of shake up the formula a little bit. Most of the time you would be building a base and training an army and doing the kind of traditional RTS mechanics. But every once in a while you would be controlling Raynor and a small squad and you'd have to survive your way through this, this, uh, this base full of Zerg enemies or whatever. Or, or you would just be Zeratul and you have to zip around, kind of like in the prologue of this game. Um, and those were kind of cool. And then StarCraft II took things further, and I think one of the main reasons for that is that they have this super robust map editor where they could play around and experiment in all sorts of ways. And also part of the idea of this whole experience, the StarCraft II experience, was like, we want multiplayer to be super traditional, and then with single player we can play around. And you'll notice in Legacy of the Void, all of the games all three of the the different StarCraft II modules have um, kind of different upgrades you can experiment with. You can equip units with different things. In Heart of the Swarm, you can mutate your Zerglings Mm -hmm. and Mainlings into different strains and have them perform in different ways. In this, you can choose up to three of each type of unit. Like, you can choose between three different uh, variations on it. I love that. It's it's super cool. And what they did was they actually added pretty much every unit that was in Brood War that had had been cut for StarCraft too, like Corsairs and Reavers and all this other stuff that they just tossed into this game. And then the me- the mechanics of each mission, I think, are very similar in that they're like, you know what? Screw it. Let's experiment. Let's play around with as many different variations and, and mechanics as possible. And man, if you guys want to explore some real crazy stuff, there is a set of mission packs called Nova Covert Ops that came out I've heard um, of this. After yeah. StarCraft II Legacy of the Void. And this was kind of like them experimenting. Team 1 at Blizzard, which is the team that made StarCraft. Their development teams at Blizzard are like Team 1, Team 2, Team 3, etc. Um, team 1, they were trying to figure out they were like, hey, what are we going to do after this? We haven't really gotten a new RTS greenlit or anything like that. We're just going to have a year of like experimenting with DLC stuff. And they came out with these mission packs. There are nine of them revolving around Nova, the ghost hero. And they basically feel like StarCraft Ghost, that old canceled game, was right. supposed to feel. Because you're going around as Nova. There's one mission where you like have to infiltrate a base. And it's like you're playing Splinter Cell. Like You can go around and switch your gear from like covert gear to like marauder gear and like flamethrower <laughs> so or whatever. Cool. It's crazy. Yeah. There's one mission, man. You guys, your minds will be blown. There's one mission 
Horizon where you're on a ghost and you are racing and it is a side-scroller racing <laughs> mission. I shouldn't say racing. It's more of like, you know those old arcade games like um, Turtles, like uh, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. NES and Super NES when sometimes you'd get into one of those modes. I'm thinking specifically yep. of uh, Turtles in Time. And yeah, sometimes yeah. you'd be on a vehicle and you'd have to like mm-hmm. like whack away at enemies as you ran, like as you as you like skateboarded or whatever. This is that. Um, and it's all sorts of crazy stuff like that. So check check those out if you want some really wild experiments. But yeah, to your point, Kirk, I mean, it's it's trying a lot of new things. And I think that was one of the goals and obviously hit or miss as, as to whether they accomplished it. But uh, it's fun to see and it's fun to play at least. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. To call out a couple of hits, since I think that the the narrative mission, it's not really meant to be that mechanically complex, and it's fine that it's that it's not super successful at doing what it's kind of trying to do. But some of the other experiments are really cool. A couple that I really liked. Um, one is where you're on a moving platform and your base is moving through mm. a sort of a series <gasps> of so stops. Cool. <laughs> so there are like buttons that you power up and then you're sliding left and right. And it's fairly open ended. I kind of just went straight through it in a fairly straight line. But it looked to me like there were a lot of areas on the map that I could have gone and that I just wound up not going. It was a pretty uh, chaotic experience playing through this because you have to use a lot of aerial uh, aerial units because mm-hmm. you're kind of floating in space. I don't remember the narrative, um, like the reason that we're doing this. It's like some sort of refueling station or something that we're moving I through. don't remember either. And I was really trying to pay attention and I, <laughs> I have no clue why we were there. And But it was so cool to even figure mm-hmm. out that that was what we were supposed to do because at first I was like, what the heck? I'm out of minerals. All the guys are really far right. away. How am I even supposed to get to them? And then I was like, oh, maybe I'm supposed to hit these huge arrow buttons at the top of the screen that I've been ignoring and confused by. What? It's moving my entire platform. (laughs) This is so freaking awesome. Like it was it was a very fun strategic layer to then move your base around and have that be on top of everything else. I was also using a bunch of stalkers and teleporting them around because most of the teleportation was long enough that I could get them to and fro without only relying on air units. And that was pretty fun as well to kind of have them leaping over the gaps, collecting extra minerals, whatever. Very, very fun. There were a lot of missions that were just creatively designed, could never happen in a multiplayer setting and could only be for the campaign. And that was what made this so special to play, was just having those very unique mission styles where it would just be like, okay, all these different kinds of units are attacking from different places. My base is moving around. I'm having to think on the fly. That's just really cool. It's cool. Yeah, there's definitely a feeling of playing a game made by designers who are at the peak of their powers. Yes. They've just yes. been experimenting with this fundamental, like this basic template that they started with of a real-time strategy game where you make a big army and you go stomp the other <laughs> army and destroy their base. And they've just been asking for so many years at this point, okay, that's the basic setup of the game. What can we do to make it surprising or how can we what can we change in the case of this level it's okay you have very limited resources and you have to keep moving your base and the map itself is mobile so you have control over where it goes another mission that i really really liked jason you alluded to it in our last episode where we talked about the first part uh, kind of the first half of the story and that's when i'm gonna get the names right that's when alarak <laughs> uh-huh. fights high lord malash uh-huh. uh-huh. for mm-hmm. control over the tal Darim. i've got the wikipedia page classic now, so i'm gonna get all the <laughs> I names was about right. 
be so impressed, but all right, there you go. <laughs> to explain this mission, um, it's really neat. They ex- they do a good job of setting it up beforehand, which is something the cutscenes don't always do, but mm-hmm. I value it whenever they do. So you get an explanation from Alarak about what's going to happen. And he's like, well, I have to like challenge this guy, Malash, to an honor battle, basically. A Rakshir. Rakshir. A Rakshir, right. Yeah, and the way it works that? is <laughs> we each sort of can bring our forces to help us, but the two of us are going to be locked in this globe fighting, and we're just going to need support from our armies. And that's going to mean like kind of pushing us along a track, and whoever's getting better support is going to be able to win the fight. It's and hearing that, I was immediately translating that into game mechanics, thinking, okay, mm-hmm. I got how this is going to work. Mm-hmm. This is basically a football that I have to push down the field <laughs> with my team while yeah. his team tries to push it back. It's a rugby scrum, I guess. It's kind of it's kind of a reverse MOBA. It's like a MOBA where yeah, you're the army actually, instead yeah. of the right. I like right. that. Yeah. It's an awesome idea. And I it was probably my favorite level of the whole campaign. Yeah, it was just too. so cool, so well designed, so logical. Very um, fun. And and very straightforward in a way that sometimes this game isn't. Uh and and, and I really like that. Like you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. There's just this globe with these guys in it and you need to just push it forward. There mm-hmm. isn't that sense of, okay, I don't know what's going to happen on the map. I don't know where I'm supposed to be going. I'm kind of scouting out. I'm building up my forces, but I'm not sure what I need. It was a lot clearer. And I think that, yeah, that was, that made for a really fun game. So that gets to a point I wanted to ask you guys about. Um, so something that I found really interesting about this is that um, the game really expects you to be doing the sort of multitasking that you would need to be doing to play competitive in StarCraft because not only are you having to train your units and worry about resources and stuff, you also are uh, are engaging in a lot of missions that have time limits at the same time as you're going to be attacked. Um, and I played on, uh, I don't remember if I was playing on Hard or Brutal this time around, but I played on the higher level difficulties. I know you guys played on a little bit lower difficulty, so I don't know if, if I was being attacked at a more frequent case or something like that. But I'm curious, did you guys find it difficult to juggle like having to uh, go in and complete your mission objectives while at the same time defending your base and maintaining your, your economy and building stuff? And did you guys find that it was like you were able to control multiple armies? Did you set up base defenses and then make one big army and use that to go do all the missions and stuff? How did you approach that? And how did you guys feel about it? Maddie, you want to start? Sure. Uh, so the the first mission where I really started to feel the pain personally was mission 18. I think it's called the host. It's it's the one where you have to defeat all of those huge kind of diamond shaped purple gems mm. and they're infinitely spawning guys. And every time you defeat one of those gems, the, the rest of the guys become stronger who are attacking you. Oh, so it's yeah, not, okay. it's not just that it, it's sort of in the last uh, 80, 90% of the, the main campaign. It's like the fi- the home stretch, mm-hmm. basically. So it makes sense that that's where the game starts to get really hard and really challenging. Um, that was the first time that I started actually looking up some tutorials because I was like, I'm not going to get mm-hmm. through this unless I start using some strategic thinking. Like in addition to managing multiple armies, like Jason was saying, I needed something more than that. I was like, I need to be thinking about what units I'm building and when I'm building them. So I actually want to recommend a guy that I had never seen before. He's probably ridiculously famous, but heck if I know about StarCraft content (laughs) creators. But his name is Jay Barino Plays, and he does a bunch of videos where he just goes through exactly which units he 
created and what his upgrades were like back on the ship for each of the levels and he does them on normal difficulty and brutal difficulty and everything and he's like here's how i did these build orders they're very clear videos i loved them i definitely used some of his recommendations and also just looked at the comments from other people being like here's my build order and it really got me back in the zone i just i was just like this is so freaking fun nice it's so challenging but in such a fun way to be like oh There's a lot of different ways to beat this. This person did it this way. These other commenters did it this way. I ended up in that fight building a bunch of colossi, colossuses. (laughs) They're Mm -hmm. really big, stompy stalker guys. And that really worked super, super well. Uh Um, And also taking advantage of, um, of course, Phoenix. How could we forget Phoenix? (laughs) Tapping him in as the special attack. He is incredibly powerful. He really kicks the shit out of people. After subjecting you to Final Fantasy VI and Suicode in two, I'm I know, really glad right? This is this is my speed. Enjoyed Jason. a game that I picked. <laughs> this uh-huh. is great. This is amazing. Well, I knew I would love it. As soon as you said it in the bet last year, I was like, "Oh, that's going to be fine. I'm going to have a great time with this." Nice, one. nice. But Kirk, what about you? Yeah, I definitely found it pretty difficult. Um, this isn't a type of game that I've ever gotten really good at or spent too much time learning, and. There does come a, a point in a young man's life when he has, <laughs> he is past 40 years old and he looks at himself and says, you know what? <laughs> Maybe I'm not going to get good There are a limited number of years I have left to master new skills and real-time strategy games from the 2010s might not be You're not going to spend 10,000 hours uh, hmm. playing okay. StarCraft no, until you become probably a not. Um, so I, I found that the difficulty of this game... Uh, was interesting because it works across a couple of different levels. I played through a lot of these uh, missions on casual or normal, kind of both. Mm-hmm. I would play normal if I was really getting worked. I'd switch to casual. Some of the missions later, I'd beat them on casual and would go back and play them on normal. Mm. And I found that it made a really big difference just knowing where everything was going to be coming from yep. and what units would do mm. the best job of dealing with what enemy uh sort of techniques and what what enemy strategies. So there's a mission, I'm, I forget the name of it, but it's near the end where you're, it's just defense. It's like defense against waves of enemies coming yep. from all four I corners know of the map. that one too. Yep. It's an incredible yep. mission. It's really exciting. Um, it's another one that lays out the stakes really clearly at the beginning. And as a result, you just know exactly what's going to be demanded of you and you know what to expect. I'm like, okay, great. So they're going to attack from one direction and I'll probably hold that off. And then right as that's ending, they're going to come from another direction. And then mm-hmm. at some point, they're going to come from two directions. And then pretty mm-hmm, soon mm-hmm. at the very end, it's going to be all three. And you're waiting while this timer kind of counts down until you're finally clear. So you just have to survive long enough mm-hmm. uh, to win the mission. And I found that to be easier the more I knew which units I should be building. So kind of like what you were saying, Maddie, that like knowing which which units to build and where to put them, who I could just kind of leave there, like what kind of towers to put to put up where. Yep. What's the name of the what are the name of the two types of towers you build in this game? There's like a basic turret. The photon cannon and then there's the like Talzarim Tower or whatever it's called. I don't know. Right. That's that the photon cannon for what it's worth is uh in multiplayer, so it's a standard unit, whereas the other cannon thing is not in multiplayer. That's just for single. Oh player. really? Oh mm. interesting. Okay. Because yeah the tower and then there's really shield good. batteries also which you have to Right. Yeah. That's true, yes. I guess. Well those were actually really important to learn how to use as well yeah. oh, on yeah. this mission. Oh, those yeah. are in multiplayer also so those you get the hang of uh, if you 
or I guess you can get the hang of in single player for multiplayer use. Right, right. Um, so that was something that I had to kind of get my head around was, okay, where do I place the turrets, which have a shorter range, but can, you know, are, are kind of not going to, like, you can put them up much more inexpensively and have them in the front with the towers behind them, and the towers are going to be more useful for longer range attacks. What actually is the range of each of these units? And that's just one example. It was true for pretty much every type of unit that I had to build. And with so much going on in a mission like that, you know, three separate fronts that you're defending against, where you're losing units kind of all over the place, the game is constantly saying, your units are under attack mm-hmm. <laughs> in a way that feels more alarming. Very than stressful. Like, oh, of yeah. course my units are under attack. That's the idea. <laughs> like, you're always going to be <laughs> under attack. So yeah. I, I did find that reading walkthroughs, I actually just read the IGN walkthroughs, which are still up, and were also really helpful just because they kind of tell you what to expect and, and give you a couple of tips for, okay, you're going to want to use, you know, this type of unit here, that type of unit there. And um, a, a lot of the sort of best practices, especially for defensive strategy, which I, I found really useful because it would have taken me a long time to figure that stuff out on my own. So did you guys find that you were able to like successfully juggle back and forth um, and uh, like a, an army and also the base and training units? Like, were you able to do that or were you just kind of like uh, uh, lost when you tried Winging to? It. Yeah. Honestly, I felt myself getting better at it as I went along. And I, mm-hmm. I definitely was significantly improving at just adding more more guys to different groupings. I got used to having certain numbers that corresponded with like my 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 air units versus my ground units and so on. I I really got that down. And then what was kind of funny about late in the game switching over to starting to watch Jay Barino plays is that he doesn't do any of that at all because I guess he's some kind of freaking super genius who just never has that <laughs> and just will constantly select his units individually just while clicking around the map at lightning speed. So that what? was kind of wild to go. I know. You, he doesn't I mean, use you, hockey. You he uses hockeys for certain missions and for other missions, he just doesn't. And I was just <laughs> well, like, okay. I can't believe what I'm seeing here. This guy <laughs> has his buildings on hotkeys, but his army's not on hotkeys. And he is truly just clicking around the map and selecting certain it's units. It's just like a mouse ninja. Wow. Yeah. I mean, for certain, certain battles, like especially that gem battle that I mentioned where your units are actually getting destroyed so quickly and you're rebuilding them so quickly in order to keep up with demand, essentially hotkeying them, I guess, is kind of a waste of time. But yeah, I mean, it was just sort of interesting to see all the different strategies that are possible. But yeah, I I certainly got better at using hotkeys. Uh, Kirk, did you start hotkeying your buildings after after our stream? <laughs> yeah, I did, and I I I still generally just use a sort of a location hotkey where I just go back to my base, and that's kind of like I can get to everything there with my mouse. And because I wasn't playing on anything above normal difficulty. It wasn't that big of a deal if I was mm-hmm. moving a little bit slowly. Like I, I found most of the time that I had more units than I needed, which is something that I actually find really satisfying in these games. Oh yeah. Going it's all the, the way back to Warcraft <laughs> 2. Um, the way that I always played these real-time strategy games, these Blizzard games, was to just build a huge army and to just overwhelm the enemy with sheer numbers rather than spending too much time fine-tuning and you know, optimizing my mm-hmm. strategy where I probably didn't need half of the units that I built, but I like to just have a million zealots and there's just a ton <laughs> of zealots and then they just run in and there are just so many of them that they, around. Yeah, that they destroy the enemy. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I feel like a lot of the missions in Legacy of the Void are designed to prevent that because there's some sort of time limit. Yeah. Like yeah. I was yep. thinking about this, I was thinking about this when I was doing that one mission where like um, you have to like 
escort these things and like I forget what they're called. It's all just nonsense terminology, like the purifiers <laughs> or something. Like yeah, they come out of the ground on short trips and you have to escort them yeah, and yeah, kill yeah. Zerg along the way. And I was thinking about how like if you try to just like turtle, which is what it's called when you just kind of like sit in your base and build up an army and just like mm-hmm. uh, defend your Play like place defenses, so you yep. can just build up a massive army and then stomp them out. You you wouldn't be able to do that mission because there's a timer and once the things start to move, you have to go defend them. So I feel like, yeah, yeah, I feel like you this 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 mission these missions specifically force you to play the game a little bit more the way it was intended to be played. Although I it could be different on casual, I'm actually not sure. No, no, it it is. Uh it, it you're correct. And I, I think that that's true. It it pushes you outside of doing that just because that's not really a strategy that'll win a lot of these missions. It's just right. not what's required. Um, I, I was mostly talking about how I used to play Warcraft 2. Right. And yep. this did this change it? Well, that's what I was getting at. Like, did this right. force you to think differently about the game? So it did, though on the lower difficulties, um, even on normal, you still kind of can win with sheer numbers. Um, a lot of these missions, your production can outstrip the casualties that you're taking just because you have a lot of really powerful units by the end of the game you've just unlocked a lot of stuff on your unit tree Mm -hmm. and so there's just like huge colossi roaming around just destroying stuff at range and you know I have so many towers that are doing such a good job of defense that I'm kind of just making dudes to make dudes past a certain point on some of the missions making dudes to make dudes (laughs) just making dudes to make dudes that's the way to play an RTS so I found that I wasn't needing to super optimize my army but at the same time I had a much better sense of the build rhythm and of just where you want to be placing your resources which you know basically that meta that you're that you're doing uh, that the, the way that you have to think about your resources what you're mm-hmm. building and uh, making sure that everything is working at the same time mm-hmm. there are just rhythms to this game that I'm sure when you start playing competitively or even on really high difficulties in single player you have to be very attuned not just to the rhythms, but to the sort of the amount of energy, the amount of attention that you need to give to any one thing. So you're both like feeling the way that, okay, I know I've got this cooking. It'll be done in a second. I've got to go back and assign those. This is about to be you know, done producing this unit. So I have to assign that again. And you're also aware on a bigger level of, and I'm going to need more of these and I'm going to need not many more of those. So I don't need to worry about that after this last time. You know, you're kind of always thinking of, of those uh, of those different rhythms, I suppose, different subdivisions mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. bar. <laughs> yeah, well, so the thing, it's interesting, not to get too granular here, but one thing I'll point out is that if you're just going by location, then what you can't do is you can't have your buildings be training units while you're controlling your army, which is really right, the which best way. wasn't something I was ever really doing yet. Right, which mm. is the best way. When you get into harder difficulties, you pretty much have to yeah. do that because you're out, your army is doing something, and at the same time, you want to be training probes back in base or you want to be training units back in base. And so, yeah, there is an interesting an interesting rhythm that you have to pick up on if you're going to get better at the game, which it's totally fine if you want to play casually and you don't. Like, I, I think it's interesting that you guys both had a good time in lower difficulty settings because I think that I actually think it's really cool that the game allows for that and it isn't forcing you to be this expert level RTS player to have a fun time playing StarCraft. I think that's always been that approachability has always been one of Blizzard's strong suits as a designer and it's uh it's always cool to see yeah the game is really fun on normal and that's pretty much all i 
did with some exceptions just if i was like this is pretty easy and and i i think that just the fact that that's possible is is so great and even the fact that there are youtube videos that are still like here's how to beat the game on normal without that being something that people are making fun of in the comments at least not that i saw is also really cool like there's still people out there who care about that um also not to change the topic but i was kind of curious if you guys had any favorites of the special power-ups that you designate your solarite towards because i i personally like any of the airstrike ones i was like <laughs> can i just pick these every time all i ever want to do is destroy the guys from the air there's like that solar one that's like uh-huh. just a huge mm-hmm. beam lance. of light yeah, that just lance. freaking destroys stuff for a billion years but it was also very hard for me to get away from using any of the passives because I love having one fewer thing to think about. Uh-huh. Like That's, passively yeah. collecting the Vespine gas. Yes. The best ability in the world. Uh-huh. How could anyone not choose that one? That's time? a good one and an interesting type of difficulty modifier because it yes. just removes one thing that you have to think about otherwise. Like yep. it doesn't really make the game easier in any kind of difficulty damage kind yep. of a way it, but it does make the game easier in that there's just less to think about and i definitely had that turn well on. it makes the game easier in that you have to uh like train six fewer, fewer probes and yep. so you can okay so there yeah that's resources true. True. something else that's true as well and also um, it, it gives you more vespine from the start so you can train units mm-hmm. faster so there were times that i found myself short on vespine and being like oh my god i shouldn't have taken this option i should have just <laughs> Mind it or refined it myself, and it would have been better. Um, I do really like the uh, the orbital strikes, and I really like the mission. I think it's toward the end where you start to lose functionality yes. mm-hmm. on this the spear of a dune. That's what mm-hmm. it's called, right? Yeah. On this, this, this weapon that you've been coming, I had been coming to rely on, and they're like, yep. "Oh no, yeah. like, we're losing functionality." And now you lose this, you lose this, and I'm yep. like, "Oh classic god, I have, to, I have to make do with just my army on the ground." My favorite yeah. was always reinforcements that I relied on quite a bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Classic. You get, a, you get a pylon and four units with it, uh, which is nice because then you can also uh, warp in units at the pylon. So very yes, helpful. Yes, which is mm-hmm. amazing. It is kind of too bad that you don't get any of those special abilities in multiplayer. I understand it would <laughs> never work, but... Well, Wouldn't it, it could be cool work. if you just it's call just in Phoenix every now and then. You. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> I mean, it, in a different type of game, it could work. It just needed to be, it would need to be balanced. And in multiplayer, I mean, you already have enough to think about in multiplayer. It's true. Like, you don't need another variable on top of that. One of the reasons that MOBAs have overtaken RTS games is because you don't have to multitask as much in a MOBA. Yeah. And so there's still, like, a barrier for entry and a skill level that you have to hit to be good at a MOBA, but it's not quite the same. You don't have to have the APM of hundreds the way actions per minute, hundreds of actions per minute the way that the the best StarCraft 2 players have. Yeah. And I also think something like a MOBA or even Overwatch or team shooters like Overwatch are are part of what's tapping into that sensation of, oh, my special ability cooldown is ready Mm, or even picking out your special abilities. I mean, it becomes picking your characters based on what special abilities they have. But I think that that's naturally so attractive to most people, not just me, to be like, oh, great. Now I get to choose my special abilities between each mission. I get to think about what they're going to be. And mm-hmm. sometimes I would even go back to my ship again and be like, I'm going to need different special abilities for this mission based on the layout of it now that I've played it and seen what I need. And that's just a very different way to play StarCraft as compared to classic multiplayer missions where everybody has identical everything and you know what everybody has. Mm, right. I mean, maybe you're playing mm-hmm. as different races, but you know what they have. 
You guys mm-hmm. should definitely check out. There's this mode called Co-op Commanders in StarCraft 2. And it's super cool because it's kind of a hybrid between multiplayer and single player in that it is multiplayer, but it's PvE. So you and another player are playing against the computer in some sort of mission. And there are a bunch of different types of missions you could do. One is like defend a train or destroy a train or whatever. Another is uh, <laughs> go kill some other some waves of enemies or whatever. They're, they're all very similar. But um, the way it works is you pick a hero um, and it's all the different heroes from the game from Martanus to Phoenix to Alarak and each of them has a different suite of units and abilities and you can play around with each of them in like as you're going through this kind of RTS campaign this this kind of weird custom campaign to complete your objectives and some of them are, are bonkers like they experimented with abilities in a way that even the the single player campaign doesn't do and so those are really fun and if you want more of maddie what you're what you were looking for with that kind of ultimate power experience you should check yeah. that out a little bit because there's some really fun ones to play around with the only annoying thing is that to unlock well some of them you have to buy some of the characters you have to buy um mm-hmm. and then to unlock all of the powers for each character you have to level them up by continuing to play missions so you don't start with all of the abilities right away but still it's pretty fun like one of them is uh man i haven't played this in a while but like one of them is just <laughs> like zerg robots and this guy creates like only zerg robot units or something like that there's some wild ones you should Weird. you guys should check them out yeah, we should just get really into StarCraft Extended Universe stuff. Like, let's <laughs> forget modern games. Let's just play a bunch of old Blizzard yeah, games. Yeah, why not? You know? Let's make this a StarCraft. <laughs> let's make this a StarCraft uh, uh, podcast. podcast. <laughs> One yeah. thing that I think that I would get really into would be a real-time strategy game that's just as complex as this, but that allows you to pause and mm. assign actions. I've been playing through uh, Shadow Gambit, or I just started playing it, which is the latest game from Me, Me, Me who made Desperados 3, and they made Shadow Tactics. So they make these real-time stealth games that actually function a little bit like StarCraft for the most part. They're, uh, you know, you're, it's an isometric view, and you're moving in real time around this battlefield you have to multitask. But they allow you to pause the game and queue up these amazing sort of synchronized attacks. So you can have, you know, one character throws a cloud of gas, and the other character sneaks in through the gas and stabs the guy, and then they both move back, and you've kind of queued up a sequence of events. And it's really satisfying, and it allows at least it allows me a level of mastery over very complex systems that I find really satisfying. And it it makes the game feel accessible without feeling simplified. Like there are a ton of different systems going on, but because I'm able to pause and take a little bit of time with them, I'm able to really get my head around them. I would really love that for something like StarCraft, where you can just stop time. I mean, it would have Mm. to be a single player game, I guess. But then you can just go through and look at what everyone's doing in this moment and then assign them different tasks and then start time again. I guess something like FTL is another another good comparison. It's the one thought I've kind of had while playing this, while also playing Shadow Gambit and Baldur's Gate 3 and these different sort of hybrid and like fully turn-based like Baldur's Gate 3, hybrid like uh, Shadow Gambit, and just how being able to pause and being able to look at all of these complex systems actually makes those systems more accessible without needing to simplify them. Like, they can still be really complicated. I have a capacity to understand that level of complexity. I just, it's a little bit of a stretch for me sometimes to do it all in real time, all the time, while, uh, you know, dealing with a changing battlefield. So, Mm -hmm. just a thought. 
thought I've had. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think what you're describing would need fewer units and more, like, it would be a different game, essentially. But yeah, that's that would be an interesting approach to the genre. Maybe. I, you could just play a single-player version of StarCraft Two where you can pause the game at any time. And other than that, it's the exact same game. That'd probably be pretty fun. Pause and give out commands. No, 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 because war doesn't pause. War. You said that. War doesn't pause. You yourself told it's us. True. That's it's true. true. That's true. It's I'm, true. I'm eating my own words now. I wish war paused, but it just doesn't. It simply doesn't pause. And StarCraft Two knows that. And it's completely accurate. It's a historical document. All this stuff really happened, I think. I mean, That's true. This is just the legacy. <laughs> All right, we're actually gonna we're gonna put a pause on our war right now and take a break, and then we'll be back with one more thing. I'm Emily Heller, and I'm Lisa Hannawalt, and we're the hosts of Baby Geniuses. We've been doing our podcast for over ten years. When we started, it was about trying to learn something new every episode. Now it's about us trying to actively get stupider, and it's working. <laughs> Hang out with us and you'll hear us chat about gardening, horses, various problems with our butts, and all the weird stuff that makes us horny. That's so weird, all that stuff. (laughs) Baby Geniuses, a show for adult idiots. Every other week on Maximum Fun. Baby Geniuses, we know everything. Baby Geniuses, tell us something we don't know. The following pro wrestling contest is scheduled for one fall. Making their way to the ring from the Tights and Fights podcast are the baddest trio of audio, the hair to beware, Danielle Radford. It really is great hair. The Brit with a permit to hit, Lindsay Cow. The queen is dead. Long live the queen. And the fast-talking, fist-clocking Hal Uplin. See, I can wrestle and be an announcer. Get ready for tights and fights. Listen every Saturday or face the pain. Find us on Maximum Fun. Now ring the bell. And we are back. War has been unpaused. Let's talk about (laughs) our one more things. Maddie, what's your one more thing? My one more thing is a movie called Asteroid City. It's streaming on Peacock, and that's where we watched it. Uh, This is a really weird movie. It's a Wes Anderson movie, so sure. It's twee. It's cute. It's got vibrant colors. Everything looks like a set in the classic Wes Anderson style. But it's also really strange and surrealist in a way that Wes Anderson isn't always like reminds me of French surrealist plays that I was really into when I was a pretentious high schooler. It's a movie that is also purports to be about a play. Like you start the movie and it's like, this is about Mm. a play called Asteroid City and it's divided up into acts uh, accordingly. And there's sort of a host of the play and like the curtains part at the outset and the 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 wall drops periodically and Edward Norton plays this character who's directing the play that you're watching and you you sometimes get to see the actors break character and talk to each other as the actors mm, off stage nice. and i i really like that as a concept but it's also very confusing to watch because <laughs> <laughs> i mean the movie just keeps switching around on you and you got to kind of keep up with that and and it's very heady stuff and just just in terms of how 
how how much you have to keep track of like you have to kind of remember like mm-hmm. okay this is the actor's feeling about the character he's playing and then okay now i'm back in the play again and he's playing his character you guys are following what i'm saying it's it's confusing yes, yes. and for the first yeah. 45 minutes or so i was like i don't know if i like this this might be too much and it might be <laughs> dumb and annoying and then somewhere around the hour mark i was like this is awesome i love this <laughs> I'm totally on board. I love this. I don't know. Something happened. It kind of clicked together for me. The play is a science fiction play. There's an alien in it. Uh, I mean, I I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but it was really cool. And it was the kind of really strange thing that eventually hung together into a statement that I thought was really cool. You just have to give it a a bit. You have to kind of be willing Mm -hmm. to watch something that you probably would have liked as a college student. It gets good after 10 hours. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's a little... No, like, some Wes Anderson (laughs) movies, they they come together in the end, and you realize what they were building for. Exactly. Like, it, I kind of started getting on board an hour in, and by the time the credits rolled, I was like, I understand what this was about, and I, I really liked it, actually. But... It's real weird at the beginning. (laughs) So, yeah, it's called Asteroid City. It's about an alien. It's a play within a movie. Edward Norton's in it. Jason Schwartzman's in it. A bunch of other old standbys from Wes Anderson Mm -hmm. things are in it. Wes Anderson players. Yes, except also Tom Hanks is in it. And he's not usually in Wes Anderson things. He likes to introduce a new face every now and then. Yeah, I really liked him in it. Uh, So, yeah, I I recommend it, I guess. But just be a little patient with it. Be patient with it. Kirk, what's your one more thing? Uh, My one more thing has a bit of a Wes Anderson connection as well. (laughs) It's uh, The After Party Season 2. This is a show on Apple TV Plus, the second season of a show that that we all all really enjoyed in its first season. So this is a show where someone is murdered and then the cast of characters try to solve the murder by reliving the night of the murder over and over again, uh, Rashomon style, and each uh, reliving of the night is told by a different person and then shot and recreated in a different cinematic style. That's the best <laughs> I can come up with for the for the sort of general hook of the show. Um, yeah. It's a comedy. It stars Tiffany Haddish, Sam Richardson, and Zoe Chow are kind of the three main characters. And they're the three characters who return for season two from season one. They are back in the midst of another murder that they have to solve. Um, It's really the Tiffany Haddish and Sam Richardson show. And really, it's the Tiffany Haddish show. She's so funny. Mm -hmm. She's so good. She gets to be the star of the funniest episode, at least so far in season two. Is Is it all out yet? Or it's still, so it's not uh, all out yet, and yeah. I actually wasn't totally sold on it at first. The first episode, which is Sam Richardson's character, Anique, telling his version of this wedding. So it's he is now dating Zoe Chow, uh, his ex-girlfriend from the first uh, season. They're now together, and her sister is getting married. And at the wedding, her uh, to-be husband, or now husband, who is played by um, Zach Woods, who we were just talking about, uh, the hilarious this, Zach Woods yeah. as this steals every scene in Silicon Valley. He's playing a like weirdo tech billionaire kind of guy. He is murdered, and um, no one knows who did it. And so now they're back stuck in another murder, and they call in Tiffany Haddish, who has since left the police force and become an author because she wrote a book all about the murder from season one. And Great. she kind of comes back in before the police come because no one 
wants to call the police yet because they're worried. They don't really know who it's going to be. So they bring her in as a kind of consultant and she begins, you know, interviewing everyone again, just like in, in season one. So at the, at the beginning, it, Anique's episode, the opening episode, I wasn't totally sold. It's like a rom-com. Everything goes wrong at the wedding, like meet the parents kind of a thing. And it was okay, but I was like, I don't know, is this show going to really have juice in season two? But it's gotten really, really good as it's gone on. It's had a couple of really standout episodes. There's a very funny Wes Anderson setup, uh, send up starring Anna Conkle, who uh, Maddie, you'll know from Pen15. She's yes, one of the stars of I Pen love F- her. Pen She's so good on that show. She's extremely funny, and it's cool to see her getting work. But um, Ken Jeong is also in this. Perfect. And John Cho, his episode actually just aired. He's their uncle or their funkle. He's their fun <laughs> uncle. And his story is told in the style of a kind of sweeping melodramatic epic. And it's really good. It's just the mystery has been really fun. Um, it's constantly surprising. Each character has revealed sides to themselves that, you know, you don't see when you first meet them in the first episode. And the other standout episode is Tiffany Haddish's, the episode that focuses on her, which is basically in the style of a basic instinct like Ooh. sexy thriller <laughs> from the 90s like Amazing. adult thriller absolutely <laughs> hilarious she's so funny the way that she's just like totally the star of the show and that episode we were dying laughing it was one of the funniest things I've seen in a long time so uh, yeah it's it's been really great I don't know who did it I have my theories but they're constantly surprising us every every episode so I'm not sure who it's going to be it could be that it's kind of a letdown but in the end the show isn't really about being satisfied with who did the murder it's more just about the comedy and the journey. So I've been really enjoying it. That's on Apple TV Plus. Uh, it's the After Party season two. Yeah, cool, good stuff. First season cool. was great. I'll probably oh, wait yeah. until. So when is the entire episode? Uh, the entire series almost be? done. I think there's one done. or two episodes okay. left. Yeah. Uh, yeah, great. I'll probably wait for the whole season. But yeah, that's exciting. Um, cool. My one more thing is a book called Traffic by Ben Smith, which I, was also my one more thing. Yeah. Last <laughs> week, but <laughs> yeah, I actually I was having a flashback. I finished the book, so I figured I would talk about it again because last week I just mm-hmm. scratched the surface, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I figured I'd discuss it a little bit. This is. Uh, an interesting book. As I mentioned last week, it's kind of a strange experience to be reading a book where you know some of the characters involved, especially one of the two main characters. And the book uh, is really interested in telling the story of like the rise of BuzzFeed and the rise of Gawker and their respective uh, creators, Jonah Peretti with BuzzFeed and Nick Denton with Gawker, and how they may or may not have changed the internet. Um, and by the end of the book, it's kind of like it, it, it's it's really, uh, he, Ben Smith writes that like, perhaps they were the Rosencrantz and Gilden, Gildenstern and the real characters were these kind of like host of villains that are on the <laughs> I was periphery. Say, did they change the internet or did the internet change the People like, well, <laughs> Really, I mean, the the real story here is that, like, characters like Andrew Breitbart and uh, Baked Alaska and a bunch of other kind of right-wing mm. troll-type mm. personalities. There's a name I haven't heard in a little while. Right. Yeah. Or, like, Benny Johnson, wow. this plagiarist conservative mm-hmm. dude. All these characters were kind of, like, like on the periphery here, learning about traffic and kind of using it for their own, for their own gains and their own goals. Um, the book is weird. I don't know if I would recommend it to anyone unless they're like super media junkies because it doesn't really, I don't know, it doesn't have the sort of details and anecdotes that I was looking for. And in fact, having lived through a lot of the Gawker stuff, I was actually um, expecting more. For example, there's uh, uh, one section where it's like a, a couple of paragraphs where he talks about the kind of infamous 
Christine Gawker story that outed a C-suite executive at Condé Nast and uh, really kind of breezes past it when internally at Gawker Media, that was like one of the most dramatic moments of the company's history. We like had, uh, it was the first time a post was ever removed. The editorial director Mm. and the editor-in-chief resigned over it. It was pretty wild. It was a huge, a huge thing. Do you get the sense that because Ben Smith's background is really at BuzzFeed, that it's just a little bit more of a BuzzFeed focused story? No, it's more that because it's trying to cram in so much, it just really mm. does a cursory uh, job of, of hitting a lot of the, the okay, scenes, which sense. which is kind of inevitable with a book like this, but there just isn't enough like really good behind the scenes like media gossip for you to be like, oh man, this is fascinating. There's some juicy stuff in here, because there isn't. And I, I didn't feel like I came <laughs> away learning that right. much um, from it the way I was hoping to. You have to wonder what Nick Denton's book would be like (laughs) so get this you know it's fascinating so both jonah and nick and a host of other characters um participated in this book and were willing to do interviews except nick in true nick denton fashion would only do interviews by either text message or in a google document (laughs) where like he would respond to questions in a google doc oh and he could make them in suggesting mode or or he could accept (laughs) and reject paragraphs in the book no 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 it wasn't it wasn't the book it was like no it was like Ben would know, write questions to him in a Google Doc, and and yeah. he would write responses. So only written bizarre, responses. In completely other words. bizarre way to conduct very an interview. Very strange. Very strange. <laughs> um, there were a couple of good scenes. There's one scene that was like uh, Disney executives trying to buy BuzzFeed, and afterwards they all like uh, get high on a roof and start arguing over whether they should accept the deal, and that that sort of stuff was fun to read about. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I was expecting a little bit more. Um, also, unsurprisingly, the word Kotaku is mentioned zero times in the entire <laughs> uh, Well, that's what's really missing. Not even a footnote to history. <laughs> not really. even a footnote. Um, yeah, they should have had a part that was like, Kotaku staffers were not present during like all the scenes where people are doing <laughs> drugs just, and just drinking and stuff. There. Just like in parentheses, they're like, by the way, no uh-huh. one from Kotaku was there for that wild party either. Yeah. They should have put that in. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it does. it feels like it's an interesting kind of snapshot in time in terms of the media world and it's interesting I guess if you're a media junkie but it's not like you'll and also it's very well written it's very easy to get through it's a very breezy yeah, he's read. A good writer. he's a good writer yes for sure but it's not like you're gonna read this and like come away with some big revelations about the world of media and if anything I kind of came away with the the this kind of like nihilistic message not intentional from the book but but my own interpretation was like man this whole snapshot in time like did not matter at all <laughs> like this, this is <laughs> This ephemeral, like, moment, this period just, like, Mm. amounted to very little didn't change anything over the course. And that's not to say that, like, like there were good uh, scoops uh, along the way that led to some change, I suppose. But, like, in terms of the media world... uh, yeah. Very little was accomplished <laughs> from, from this whole this whole saga. Some and in people fact, got some job experience. Well, no, that yeah, that's about but like, it, I guess. In the in the grander <laughs> over, the, in fact, the most interesting part I thought was there's a chapter about the New York Times and their kind of internal politics over going digital and how Ooh. they like Jonah Peretti came and like did a did a speech for them and stuff and uh, Jonah Peretti and like other people thought like look at this dinosaur like we're gonna eat its lunch and. 
then the New York Ooh, Times yeah. turned around and just destroyed everybody by like making this incredible digital uh, digital adaptation and turned around and really reinvented itself in in a way that just uh, uh, blew the Buzzfeeds and Gawkers of the world out of the water. So yeah, it was really it's I guess there's some interesting stuff I, I should say it's not all it's not all cursory and boring, but um, I do think it's it's more of a book for journalists and media junkies and like your average uh, your average connoisseur of uh, news uh, in the world. But yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's the book. I just wanted to talk about it now that it's finished. All right, Thanks. that is my one more thing. It is time to say goodbye. Kirk, Manny, I'll see you both next week. Yeah, see you next week. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows, supported directly by you.